0: Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Alessandra Tanassini. Alessandra is Professor of Philosophy at Cardiff University. She specializes in epistemology, ethics, and the philosophy of language, and the intersections of these fields. Her new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled The Mismeasure of the Self, a Study in Vice Epistemology. Now, a lot of epistemology focuses on the analysis of central epistemological concepts, things like knowledge and justification, evidence, truth, and belief. But having knowledge is also a matter of acquiring knowledge, And this means that epistemology should also address questions about our conduct in acquiring knowledge. How should we go about finding things out? What does it mean to be a good inquirer? Questions like that. This suggests that people can behave badly or improperly as epistemic agents. So it falls also to epistemologists to examine bad epistemic conduct as well. Now, in her new book, The Mismeasure of the Self, Alessandra begins from the observation that good epistemic conduct involves proper appraisal of one's epistemic condition, including one's own cognitive strengths and weaknesses. Her book is focused on the ways in which epistemic self-assessment can go wrong. Along the way, she provides a general theory of epistemic virtue and vice. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about here, but before we get into all the details, why don't we begin, as we usually do, with our guest, the author? Hi, Alessandra. Hi, Bob. How, How are, are you? you doing today? Oh, I'm Hi, doing great. I'm How are you? <laughs> fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Um, so we usually begin these interviews uh, with a uh, you know a little bit about the author. Can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I teach philosophy at Cardiff University. I I'm Italian, and uh, the Italian accent, but I've been here Cardiff for a long, long time. And my, my interest really is in epistemology, as you said, but I would like also to add in feminist philosophy. And in fact, part of the genesis of this book, as I hope we will discuss, is my interest in issues of oppression and discrimination, and so I think a part of this book as an investigation into that psychology uh, of oppression, as I hope uh, we will have time to investigate. Um, apart from philosophy, uh, I'm really interested in sailing. Uh, and so I always think that my best thoughts are, if I have any best thoughts, they always come to me uh, whilst I'm away from everything and I am over the water, hearing the wind in the sails. So, so that's what I like to do apart from doing philosophy.
0: Can I ask you about the sailing? So um, uh, did you grow up uh, 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 doing sailing or is that something that uh, a, 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 an activity you got interested in later in life?
1: Uh, I grew up dreaming of sailing, but none of my family were into it, so I, I didn't. And then, uh, when I moved to the UK, where, uh, I suppose sailing is something that, uh, is very popular, or at least is very popular along the coastlines, then I, uh, and I got friends who sail, so I, I really got into it that way. Um, and I, It's something I I really like doing, and uh, this is sort of incidental, but, you know, there are a lot of philosophers who do sail, uh, and a lot of philosophers who sail together. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, I, you know that's that's news to me I, yeah. <laughs> so michael lynch and i go sailing together for instance oh i knew about michael yeah but yeah. i I, yeah. I i hadn't realized uh uh that that, that there were more of you
1: and <laughs> michael lynch said but i only have it on from him that ford and Don Dennett used to sail together oh right. whether this is true or not i don't know uh But also Zalabardo, who you might know, works on Wittgenstein, also is a keen sailor. So there is a little fraternity
0: of us. (laughs) Well, that's fabulous. Um, You know, again, just uh, I grew up... um, in a part of New Jersey that was about a 45-minute drive away from the beach. Um, and so when I moved to a landlocked state, uh, you know, Tennessee is, is doesn't have a coast. <laughs> uh, that's the one thing my wife and I really miss about um, living in the Northeast or living in, uh, in New Jersey is how close it was to, um, to the ocean. Um, so, um, but uh, we... <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you and I could talk a lot about the philosophical advantages of being on water uh, for a long time. Um, but w- let's get to the book. Um, so, the, the, the mismeasure of self is, um, as the subtitle, uh, which I mentioned, uh, su- uh, states, is a study in vice epistemology. Um, I guess some listeners will be familiar. Uh, with the idea and the, um, I don't know if it's right yet to call it a movement, but I guess it is uh, the movement in epistemology to study intellectual vice. Um, but maybe not everybody uh, will be familiar with uh, with that term and that research program. So um, why don't we begin? Can you give us some background to um, the the development uh, uh, to, to the the uh, the growing number of epistemologists who. Um, are are paying close attention to epistemic vices or and, and intellectual vices more broadly?
1: Uh, yeah, so so I think different things have come together to 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 create this field of inquiry. So first of all, uh, the study of intellectual virtues sort of has really come of age, and so. It's kind of natural, I suppose, to then wonder about intellectual vices, partly because so much of virtual epistemology has modeled itself onto virtual ethics. And of course, virtue ethics is concerned both with virtues, but also with vices. So it's, it's natural, I suppose, that when, the, when virtual epistemology started as the study of intellectual virtues, the moment it moved up... The moment virtual epistemology moved away from a close focus exclusively on, on the traditional questions of epistemology. So, for instance, uh, how to give a conceptual analysis of knowledge, right? So, mm-hmm. early virtual epistemologists, for instance, I think Linda Zagzebski, <laughs> tried to give a virtual epistemological account of the traditional questions of epistemology. The limits of human knowledge, what is knowledge, what is justification, and so on and so forth. But then, virtual epistemologists broaden the range of inquiry. So, you have people like Bob Roberts, but also Jason Baer, who think of virtual epistemologies as addressing a host of questions some of which have very little uh, to do with the traditional epistemological questions. And so people uh, have started, for instance, asking how to acquire virtues, how to become a better um, inquirer, And, and these general questions about how to do ameliorative epistemology, where ameliorative epistemology is epistemology that is concerned on how to make us better thinkers rather than try to do conceptual analysis. The moment you think of epistemology as addressing a broader range of questions and virtual epistemology is addressing this broader range of questions, then it becomes more natural, I think, to think, well, okay, so we want to find out how to to be better thinkers? How to develop, you know, attitudes, traits of character, skills that make us better. You know, then you might wonder, but what is holding us back? What are the bad features? And then the question of vice epistemology becomes uh, a, a sort of obvious extension. Another thing that I think has come together to make interest in vices uh, sort of popular is that um um this might be me but i think there has been in epistemology a turn away well not away but a turn toward investigating when things go badly So if you think there is now work on epistemic injustice, there is work on the epistemology of ignorance, right? So all of these negative terms that epistemologists were not concerned with are now becoming the sustained uh, focus of investigation. I think, but this is speculation on my part, that this is part of a move away from ideal theory in in epistemology. So if you think of traditional epistemology, it is concerned, and and several epistemologists are still concerned with, uh, norms, right, the norms of belief, the norms that constitute knowledge, the norms of inquiry, and sort of idealize away from uh, human limitations of attention, human mixed motives and so on and so forth in order to figure out what are you know the, the norms that ought to in the in principle in the ideal case govern go inquiry or be used to achieve knowledge and so on and so forth uh, but what but when they do ideal epistemology in this way they abstract away from certain things that are essential to to human, Nature, for instance, the fact that our rationality is bounded, right? That there are limits that we, uh, our performance declines when we are in conditions of cognitive load, and so on and so forth. And as people have become more interested in non-ideal epistemology, i.e., the kind of study of epistemology that is still normative, right? It's still concerned of how to make things better, say but is fully aware of the the genuine limitation of human cognitive architecture and the realities, both of social pressures and so on and so forth. Once you focus on that, then you need to understand how things go badly in order to make things go bat- better. And hence, I think, a, an interest in the negative. And I think, you know, negative terms, uh, ignorance, um, prejudice... Um, Vice and so on and so forth, and I think vice epistemology is part of this movement. Uh, there is non-ideal epistemology that is deeply uh, empirically informed, usually empirically informed with the uh, psych. In- steeped in the study of social psychology, or at least my work is, but others I think are closer to cognitive psychology, while others still I think are influenced by sociology. So if you think of some interesting work by T. Nguyen, again on a negative term, equal chambers, uh, again deeply influenced by empirical work this time, I think primarily in sociology. Uh, and so it is, vice epistemology is the study of intellectual vices, and it makes sense if you start to think that the role of the epistemology is to understand using the empirical work done by others. You know, human cognition how it really works. And then to use the philosophical skill to to both understand what is going wrong and to make a proposal for improvement. and And that's what I think I do in the book as well. Does that, does that answer the question? Does that explain? Oh,
0: absolutely. That's a very, very strong answer uh, um, and very helpful, I'm sure. Um, uh, so um, the book then, and that's a, a nice segue into talking about the details in the book. Um, so the book examines um, particularly virtues and vices of epistemic self-evaluation. Um, but the first part of the book Um, is devoted to spelling out um, your more general um, approach or your more general conception of epistemic virtues and vices, um, where you give an account, as you were just saying, um, of the way in which your approach to virtue and vice epistemology um, is rooted in some uh, some psychological and social psychological uh, uh, underpinnings. So, um, can you um, spell out the, the 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 broad conception of the intellectual virtues and vices and how they work and how they're connected to um, psychological uh, uh, work? Sure. So, uh, uh, let me start with two observations.
1: The first observation uh, is that virtue and vice epistemologists, like virtue and vice ethicists, generally presume that what they are talking about are constructs that are real, so that there is empirical reality to virtues and vices. I mean, there are, there are exceptions. Julia Driver, for instance, does not think, uses virtue-theoretical talk, but is not committed to the real existence of virtues and vices. So th- so if you think that virtues and vices are real, real features of human psychology, it seems uh, quite uh, natural to try to, to investigate them in a way that if it's not informed by em- empirical psychology, at least is not contradicted. Does not contradict (laughs) empirical findings, right? Because you're aiming to talk of something that has empirical reality. Uh, Typically, uh, virtual and vice virtue epistemologies primarily uh, focused on character traits. And then I've looked at the psychology of personality uh, and personality traits. Uh, in order to inform their understanding of virtues as character traits. Vices, though, are different because vices are more heterogeneous, arguably, than virtues are. Uh, You know, that saying, all uh, happy families are happy in the same way, but... Each unhappy family <laughs> is unhappy in his own particular way. There's always many more ways for things to <laughs> go going badly than there
0: are going well. Right, so, Aristotle has got that quote: "says you know many are the you know many yeah. are the ways of bad men, but good men have but one way." He says yeah. in the first book of the Ethics. Yeah.
1: So vices <laughs> so are heterogeneous in this way, right? Uh, uh, and so. When people started looking at vice epistemology, I think the first book that came out on the, you know, sort of um, monograph dedicated wholly to the topic, I think is Kasim Kassan's book that came out only last year. And he begins right. also with the observation that vices are really heterogeneous, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, so, you know, they are, they are indeed character traits, some of them, things like close-mindedness, arguably. Uh, but uh, there are also, I think, sensibilities or better, lack of sensibility, you know, being especially inattentive to sort uh, to, uh, of epistemic features of a situation, you know, having blind spots, you know, mm-hmm. for instance, um, could be advice And it seems to be sort of a lack of a perceptual skill, something like that. Um right. Attitudes, arguably, you know, being prejudiced uh, is a vi- intellectual vice, but it doesn't seem to fit the character trait mode. Uh, styles of thinking, you know, uh, being particularly fixed in one ways of thinking uh, or always playing devil's advocate, even when it's inappropriate, right? Um, so all of the, these features of vices show them to be motley and not clearly just character traits. and So Kasinka Kassam just says they are heterogeneous and that's just the way it is. Uh, I try to find uh, a psychological framework that can acknowledge the heterogeneity of vices, but at the same time uh, find a way of making the picture less messy by saying that they all are built of the same components, And for me, those components are attitudes. And so one of the the features, I suppose, of the first third of the book is to provide a a framework uh, that I get from social psychology that tries, if you want, uh, to describe what is the nature of virtues and vices, or a list of the virtues and vices of self-assessment. And I claim that they are cluster of attitudes. Now, uh, saying that they are cluster of attitudes can generate a lot of misunderstanding, because the moment you say attitudes to a philosopher, they will presume that you're talking about propositional attitudes, things like uh, desires or beliefs. Uh, right. But when psychologists talk about attitudes, they actually have in mind something that is rather different. Although sometimes uh, psychologists think that that's what beliefs are. But, right. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but attitudes are not uh, propositional states attitudes are summary evaluation of an object where object is meant in the formal sense uh, and that object is the object of the attitude so so something like really liking chocolate is an attitude toward chocolate is is a summary of that evaluation of chocolate as something positive that's an is an attitude Uh, And so, as you see, they are very different from beliefs and desires. Uh, uh, um, Attitudes are, as I say, summary evaluations. So you can think, and psychologists think of them as cognitive shortcuts. So the idea here is that at some point in life, uh, you evaluate an object, and you evaluate it along several dimensions for instance, is it dangerous? You know, is it pleasurable? Is it uh, attractive in whatever way? Uh, And then you come up with an answer um, and it would make a lot of sense from an evolutionary point of view if you didn't have to work out every time you met an object, how you feel about it. So, you know, uh, we don't need every time we meet a venomous snake or a snake that might be venomous, maybe isn't, to sort of, you know, say, oh, how do I feel about snakes, right? Uh, it is useful to have attitudes that are, if you want, the summary of past evaluations, they are, com- they are immediately triggered by the presentation you know, of the object. So this is what attitudes are, are summaries of past evaluations. Uh, They Of course, they can be revised, you know, in the light of novel experiences, you might revisit your past evaluation and therefore change your mind, i.e. form a different attitude. And so uh, a a case where in the light of new evidence, uh, you reconsider what your attitude is, you then form a new attitude based on the past experience and the novel one. Right. Uh, so, so, do, so and the, so
0: the attitudes—the attitudes are the. Um, I, I, I guess I'm. I'm. I'm I, I still want to hear more about how the attitudes are connected to or, or related to uh, the states, uh, as heterogeneous as they may be, of, of virtue of, of of the virtues and the vices.
1: Yes. So. So. The, I need to say one more thing about attitudes. Sure. Sure. So, so attitudes are formed, as I said, as summaries of evaluations, but these evaluations are not necessarily unbiased. So, these evaluations that lead to the formation of the attitude are are driven, if you want, by, by a question, right? So, the question in front of the the snake would be something like, "Is this dangerous?" Right. Uh, the question in front of uh, the chocolate uh, might be, "You know, if I eat it, will pe- will people then dislike me?" You know. So there are all your your assessment of the object is driven by various motivations. And, and people say that the main motivations are knowledge, right? So you evaluate an object in order to, to figure things out. self financement or ego defense, you're assessing things for how uh, dangerous they are to your own self-conception. Uh, and you can also assess things for how, you know, They, how that thing contributes to you fitting in in your in group right so you have attitudes there are summary evaluations of how an object contributes if you want to a certain goal the goal of fitting in society the goal of feeling good about yourself or ego defense and the goal of knowledge so these attitudes in addition can be uh, strong uh, when not when you have strong here doesn't mean um, that you feel strongly. It means that is triggered in most circumstances, so that there is a strong association between the the evaluation, there is the attitude and the object, right? Um, so the result then is that, and attitudes can also be part of your definition of the self. They can be central to your own self-conception. So having said all of this, then the view here is that uh, we have attitudes, There are attitudes to the self. So this time the object of the attitude are uh, parts of ourselves and especially uh Uh, some of our abilities. So I will, for instance, have an attitude to my ability to speak English well, or I will have an attitude to my mathematical ability. I will have an attitude about uh, whether I'm a good cook or not, right? So these are all attitudes directed to the self. And these attitudes need not be evaluations they are driven by the desire to know yourself, but they can be driven by uh, the desire to fit in or driven by the desire to feel good about yourself. So my claim is that most intellectual vices of self-evaluation are based on these attitudes to the self and to one's own abilities, which are either driven by the motive of self-knowledge, and if they are, they are virtuous, or they are driven by these other motives of fitting in society or feeling good about yourself. And when your own evaluations of your own capacities is driven by uh, these motives, it is likely to be off, To it's likely to be unreliable. And given the role that our own evaluations of our own ability play in guiding inquiry, if that evaluation of the self is off-kilter, then that will reverberate through your uh, ability to engage in inquiry. And so you can think of these other things, uh, styles of thinking, attitudes, uh, sensibilities, character traits, as things that ultimately are manifestations of these attitudes to the self, which can be either faulty or correct. Does that make
0: sense? Oh, absolutely. That was a very elegant way of um, uh, of of spelling out the um, you know very rich. It seems to me. Um, Sort of conception of the intellectual terrain of of of, of, of virtue and vices uh, that you spell out in the book. Um, so good. Having said that, uh, and, and put that that part of the uh, of the picture in place. Um, so your account of sort of virtuous um, self evaluation, um, it sort of has the the the, the virtue of, of intellectual humility uh, at its center. Um, and this virtue sort of invokes, or is in some ways, I guess, maybe composed of others, modesty about one's achievements and uh, a kind of acceptance of, of one's shortcomings. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm aware, uh, you know, there's a lot of work being done about um, intellectual humility. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, th- that, that sort of core uh, intellectual virtue on your view?
1: Yes. Sure. Uh, so I think you're right. I think intellectual humility actually has two components that can, can be distinct. And I actually believe that there are people who exemplify one but not the other. Uh, but often they are together, and when we think of people as being intellectually humble, uh, we actually think of people who have the combo. Um, so I think the fact that Intellectual humility is dual in this way, might explain partly why the the philosophical both psychological literature on intellectual humility is so varied. At least in philosophy there are two um, guiding thoughts that have created the really bifurcated literature on intellectual humility. The first thought was uh, based on Julia Driver's idea that humility is a virtue of ignorance. So the person who is humble is the person who is ignorant of their own uh, strengths or good qualities. I mean, Driver talks in terms of modesty uh, rather than humility, and I think she's right that this, you know, I mean, I disagree with this characterization of modesty, but I think she's right that this is about the modesty dimension of humility. But other people have taken her to be talking about humility in general. So that's the first thought, right, that humility is something about doing yourself down in some way, right? Or being, uh, underplaying something. Uh, people then have developed this thought in terms of humility being low in self-focus, uh, but sort of not seeing oneself as the center of the universe. And others, uh, famously, Wickham, Bear and uh, Heather Batley and Howard Snyder, have sort of thought that uh, it's not about uh, underestimating one's own strengths, but acknowledging one's limitations. So you have this cluster of views about humility that link it to sort of acknowledgement of limitation, uh, to ignorance about strengths, and so on and so forth. And then you have a wholly other tradition, I think, in the work on humility and. Uh, people have written in that way. For instance, I hear in church that think that to be humble is to to know your own strength, strengths and weaknesses. Right, and the person who is humble uh, is the person who ha- knows themselves, knows you know how good they are, and and so on and so forth. Uh, and and I think people tend to know belongs to this second tradition. Focus on knowledge. Uh, Nancy Snow also, in a ne- one of the earliest, I think, uh, papers on that tradition, talks about uh, humility as knowing your own, you know, your own limits, but also knowing your own strengths uh, So people who focus on that focus on, if you want, the intellectually virtuous part of humility, right, which is you know yourself, right? Uh, was the others that sort of tend to talk about the loss of co- focus and so on and so forth, uh, focus perhaps on aspects of humility that are harder to square uh, with the idea of an intellectual virtue. Why would we be intellectually virtuous to actually be in error about, you know, your strengths and weaknesses, right? So I think that the reason why we have these two traditions about what intellectual humility is is because they actually tap on different aspects of what is that in reality a composite. So in my view, uh, what humility is, is both about strengths and limitations, and it is about self-knowledge. But what it doesn't require is that one gets it right what it requires is that one is motivated to get it right. Uh, so, so I think, in especially in um, what people call epistemically polluted environments, i.e. environment that mislead, environment full of misinformation and disinformation, or if you want, early feedback of the wrong sort, uh, people can be motivated to know themselves uh, but end up with a with a, a false assessment, right? Uh, due to the fact that they are being presented with a lot of misleading information. I don't want to say that these people are not humble because in reality they don't have they don't really know their strengths and weaknesses. They are under misapprehension, right? I want to say that if their motive is a motive of self-knowledge rather than a motive of self-enhancement or just fitting in in society, uh, that counts for humility. So somebody could overestimate how good they are but still be humble. And somebody could underestimate how good they are and still be humble. And I think you can come up with examples. Uh, You know, in the book I, I talk about the person who... You know, it overestimates the importance of uh, our contribution to biology, right? And does so uh, because it's a genuine error, right? Uh, this person should not be, I think, thought of as hubristic or arrogant, right? Simply because they overestimate their abilities, right? Uh, they're only rightly seen as uh, arrogant and not humble, if, you know, they behave in other ways. I don't know, they boast or they bully other people and so on and so forth. And so I then think of humility as an assessment of one's own abilities, which is not necessarily accurate, but is driven by an accuracy motive. And there's the, the fact that, it has an epistemically good motivation that makes it an example of intellectual humility.
0: Right. Right. Good. Um, That's very helpful. Um, But, you know, let's turn to the vices, which for some reason are always more fun. Um, So uh, one is again, central vice um, uh, is what you call sort of among the vices of superiority. Um, Particularly uh, I was keen to have you talk a little bit about superbia.
1: Yeah, so let me let me say something about superbia first, if you want, and then I'll, sure. I'll generalize to the vices of superiority. So, superbia is is a Latin term. Um, I am denard a lot as to whether to keep the Latin terminology, because it does come, come across as really eyefalutin, and, and <laughs> it's something I really dislike. And um, but I have not been able to find a, a good equivalent in English. Right. And so at the end, I just decided to stick with the Latin term. So for the medieval, superbia was a vice. If you look at tra- translations in English now, uh, they say that it's the vice of pride. But because pride, in my view, now in English, uh, is sometimes thought as a virtue and sometimes as a vice, uh, translating superbia as pride would just, I think, mislead. So, So superbia is a kind of arrogance and is the arrogance that pertains to the people uh, who need to push other people down in order to feel good about themselves mm. so the idea here would be the person that the only way they can value their intellectual contribution say is by thinking of themselves as better than other people and so there would be characteristics for instance of people who feel all the need to 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 put other people in their place uh, uh, that feel all the the time uh, a need to establish packing orders. So I think philosophy is, you know, philosophical (laughs) talks are are full of wonderful examples. I mean, uh, I, I actually do not know what. Department, this was, but I've heard it so many times. I don't know whether it's an urban myth or true, but that there was allegedly a department where, um, every time they invited a speaker to give a talk at the end, I don't know who did this, but somebody in the department would sort of come to an assessment of who won whether the department or the speaker, right? <laughs> and then would chuck it up and just say, you know. This year we won 10 times, five speakers left crying, you know, things like that. (laughs) And I mean, that might be an excess. But one of the points there is, you know, a, a, a real concern, not for figuring out the truth or anything, a real concern with... Establishing a pecking order of smartness, or a pecking order of intelligence, or a pecking order of argumentative prowess, and coming on top, right? So that that is superbia. Yeah. This need, you know, to uh, this this need to be better than other people, which is driven by this deep need to to feel good about oneself and 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 the conception of what it is to feel good about oneself that requires that one is better than other people. so so that's superb and and that is the characterization of that of superbia that for instance Dante Alighieri offers in in his divine comedy. so he sort of these says of superbia that he is the vice of the people who uh, whose self esteem is wholly dependent on um, pushing other people down, seeing other people fail. So that's superbia. Yeah. So let me say why it is a vice of superiority uh, and then say a little bit about the other vices of superiority. So I say, I call that, I get the term, by the way, vices of superiority from Jose Medina's book, The Epistemology of Resistance.
0: My former uh, colleague. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, I know. Uh, and also <laughs> from McAllister Bell book uh, in ethics, on the ethics of contempt, bad feelings. It's a great
0: book. Yeah, 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 yeah it yeah. is a
1: fantastic yeah. book.
0: No, right. It's called but Hard Feeling. Hard feelings. Hard feelings, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's
1: a good uh, book. So, so I think the way I use that term is related to the way they use it. So mm-hmm. I think of advice of superiority as being... So having to do with superiority is in three ways. First is the vice of people who feel superior in some sense to other people. They don't necessarily believe that they are superior because, in my view, some of these vices are rooted in deep insecurities. So depending on what your conception of belief is, uh, these people might not be actually believing that they are superior. Uh, right. But they, they feel superior in some way. But this feeling of superiority perhaps is very fragile and easy to undermine. And, and if so, therefore, does not count as you know, being a, a genuinely held belief. So uh, they are linked to feelings of superiority. They are linked to behaviors that, as I just illustrated with superbia, that behaviours, they are designed to create pecking orders. And pecking orders where the person who has this vice emerges at the top of the pecking order or near the <laughs> top of the pecking order. And, Lo third, and, behold. <laughs> and third, I speculate uh, that people who hold positions of privilege uh, in virtue of... Uh, some immutable uh, traits that they have, like their race or their gender, might be a higher risk of developing these vices. So Medina talks in these terms, right? Uh, People who who occupy a position of privilege lack what Medina calls the kind of uh, friction, you know, epistemic friction, that takes them down a peg in some ways. And uh, and because they are pre- they are in a, in an environment uh, which uh, l- gives them a position of privilege makes them smoothes you know smoothes the mm-hmm. uh, the career for them they might initially as kids be under the misapprehension that they are better than they are and then when you are used to thinking of yourself as being good in a certain way it's hard to come to accept that one is not as good as one right it's hard once you have uh you are in a in a good position it's hard to come to accept that that is undeserved privilege right it it's difficult to to you know give it up and so the speculation is that then you know people who are privileged in this way uh are more at risk of developing these vices because in order not to develop these vices, they need to give up, you know, some comfortable positions and accept some unpalatable truths. So so they are at risk. So that's the sense in which I talk about vices of superiority. And arrogance and superbia are one example. Uh, But another example are uh, vanity and narcissism, which for me are... You know the four vices of superiority. Where they differ from each other is how their attitudes are. Right. So the idea here is is that there are attitudes to toward the self or aspects of the self, and their attitudes, uh, they are positive. that see oneself as having a lot of strengths and good qualities, and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, think of yourself as good at math, I don't know, good at drawing, good at whatever, right? Um, and so the idea here is that uh, in the case of the person who, who is arrogant, uh, these good assessments of themselves and assessment of themselves as better than the average, right, are driven by the need for self-enhancement, i.e. the n- need to protect the self. So as I said, with superbia, right, the person who suffer from superbia can only feel good about themselves if they are better than other people. Why? Well, because their good opinion of themselves, of their attitudes to themselves, of holding themselves high, or as in a positive light, uh, are driven, right? Uh, they are not accurate. there are not assessment driven by the need to be accurate, as they would be in the humble person. But they are driven by the need to feel good about oneself. In the arrogant person, in the vain person, they are driven by the need to be liked by other people. Right. And so that's why the book is called "The Mismeasure of the Self." Right. So the the arrogant person measures their own abilities not uh, by inaccurate by the meter of accuracy right they measure uh, their own abilities by the meet, by the following meter how feeling this way about this aspect of myself does it make me feel good about myself if yeah. it does, Uh, then I have this attitude, right? And so the attitude is a faulty attitude partly because it's very likely to be inaccurate. Uh, But even if it was by completely fortuitous coincidence accurate, so say a person who is both arrogant and actually a genius, right? (laughs) Uh, Nevertheless, the attitude is not formed on the basis of the actual evidence but is formed Uh, by way of uh, motivated cognition. uh, Driven by the need to only look for evidence of one's own ability and ignore or avoid looking uh, at counter evidence. And so you end up uh, feeling good about yourself, but partly because you only looked for evidence that makes you feel good about yourself. And so you have mismeasured your own abilities. The vain person does the same, but this time what they they appreciate about themselves what they think is good about themselves is what other people, what they think other people will like them for.
0: Right, right, right. Fabulous. Th- th- so let's talk then about this other class of, of vice. So we talked about um, the vices of superiority. Um there are also vices of inferiority. Can you tell us about those?
1: Yes. Uh, so, so if the vices of superiority are devices of people who feel superior, feel the need to push other people down or anyway to establish pecking orders where they are at the top, and uh, and they are devices the that characterize people who are privileged. Devices uh, of inferiority are devices of people who feel inferior. Uh, think that they are at the bottom of the of the pecking ladder. And and I also argue that uh, people who are in subordinated positions are more at risk of developing these vices, which is, I don't want to... There is a risk when you say things like that, that you're blaming the victim, right? Uh, right. I don't want to say uh, that people should be blamed for because they are servile or because they are timid. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that one of the things that oppression does, or if you want marginalization and subordination does, is that it warps people's character and it right. makes them into people who are more servile. With servile, I mean, yes, people, you know, people who defer too easily to other people's opinion, who parrot other people, and timid are people who self-silence rather not speak up. So I think that there is a lot of psychological evidence that tends to say that to some extent uh, uh, there are people who develop these features. It's interesting that uh, it's not always as gendered as people think it is, but uh, nevertheless there are certain associations with gender. And so I'm interested in how... uh, people develop these vices. And one of the features of people who are so violent, timid, for instance, is that they attribute... They have a, what is known in psychology a depressive atti- attributional style. So they see oh. any, any success they have as a matter of luck or right. how easy a task is, and any failure as evidence of their inferiority. And so I'm interested in you know, in how these vices develop. And again, I think that these are uh, vices that again are about, bizarrely, how to fit in in society and uh, how to uh, uh, protect the ego. So if arrogance is the fight response to alleged attack, uh, timidity is the flight response to alleged attack. Uh, and if vanity is the sort of a grand grand grandiosity aspect of needing to to be admired, servility is the deferent aspect of equally needing to be admired so they both have you know they these two motivations to be liked and to defend the ego drive all of these biases, but depending on the social circumstances you find yourself in you will adopt a flight or fight strategy and you will
0: adopt a grandiosity versus lucky
1: strategy.
0: I see. I see. Well so Alessandra, you know, you're very generous with your time. Really appreciate uh, talking about the book. Um, I wanted to make sure, though, that um, we get the chance to talk about um, the, the, the end of the book um, and particularly two notes. So I'm, I'm going to sort of build two questions, um, uh, uh, put two questions into one question um, for uh, the end of our interview. Um, so the third part of the book is. Um, talks about how epistemic vices are harmful and potentially the source of moral wrongs. Uh, and then the final chapter of the book talks about, um, ways in which epistemic virtue or intellectual virtue might be cultivated, or you know, alternatively, uh, the ways in which it, uh, um, intellectual vices could be dismantled. So I wanted to ask you both of those questions. You know, so can you tell us a little bit about the harms and wrongs and also about the, the cultivation aspect uh, of the uh, vice epistemology program?
1: Yes, so about the harms and wrong, basically, as I've hinted so far, one of the characteristics of devices is that, as I understand them, is that people who suffer from them basically engage in motivated cognition. Their, Their assessment of reality is driven by these two needs, either to defend the ego or to be liked by other people. And because they are driven by these needs, their, their assessment of many features of reality uh, suffer from what is known as motivated cognition, right? Which is basically a way of biasing because you, uh, you only... Well, two things. One is you only look at reality to ask this sort of uh, goal-oriented question, right? Uh, is this good to enhance the self? And you don't ask other questions, but also if you are, for instance, driven by the need to defend the self, uh, your the level of evidence that you require to say yes, this is a threat is very low, right? It makes sense that a mechanism there is a mechanism of self defense has got many false positives, right? And so and so you you will have as a consequence of this. Uh, that these individuals who have these biases engage extensively in motivated cognition and and therefore uh, are the source of many epistemic harms to to themselves and to others because they will end up with uh, false beliefs. They will end up with um, thinking of themselves as being more informed than they are, so spreading misinformation and so on and so forth. So they are harmful in in to themselves and to others by spreading false information, by trying to spin, trying to convince other people. But also they are harmful because uh, to the personalized devices, because basically they are forms of self-deception. Because if you believe that you're good only because believing that you're good makes you feel good about yourself, if you were aware of that, you would stop. The, you know, thinking of yourself as good, you will see that you're self-deceived. And so, uh, as Kassam says, you know, um, these vices are stealthy because they are they are they are hard to discern by the people who has it. Few people who are arrogant think of themselves as being arrogant. So they are harmful in in all of these ways. Uh, and 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 if you think that the person who has them. Is unlikely to see that they have them, uh, then it's really hard to see how they could improve, right? And so the final part of the book is about putting forward, I mean, it's about criticizing the idea that all you need to do is to put people in front of exemplars and they will want to emulate <laughs> them. Uh, again, right, so the people who are arrogant you know, want to put other people down. They envy, you know, their achievements, and so they are mm-hmm. unlikely to want to emulate. So instead, I, well, I propose something that perhaps is counterintuitive, but the view is uh, to sort of make people who suffer from these vices of superiority feel less self-invested and, mm-hmm. and make them reflect on what really is valuable to them, and the idea is that if they uh, reflect on values, uh, they probably acquire a sense that their self is broader than they think it is and so are less likely to perceive attacks as personal attacks. And so the idea is that a reflection on values uh, should, at least temporarily, um uh, ameliorate the situation or at least that is one of the things i i promote among others
0: right and um you also are just last thing you're also suspicious of a um uh of the proposal that sort of attributing uh virtuous states to people is a cause is is a causally efficacious I mean, even you know, causally efficacious way under certain circumstances to encourage their manifestation of the virtues, even when they lack them. Right.
1: Well, so no, actually, <laughs> <It's tricky. laughs> I, I, I do, I do agree that uh, virtues is as Alfano calls it, factitious. So the right. idea is by calling people virtues. It, if, if that's plausible to them they become more virtuous and uh, by calling people vicious again if that's plausible to them they'll become more vicious which is one of the reasons why uh, although I think people are blameworthy for their vices I think others should not blame them I, I think it's, it's going likely to backfire and counterintuitive and counterproductive uh, i don't uh i don't oppose uh the idea that calling people uh virtuous might make them more virtuous if they think that that's uh possible uh plausible as you know uh, as a feature of them i just think that uh by itself will not particularly help uh the person who is arrogant, because they already think they are fantastic. If you tell them they are fantastic, they are just likely to think even more than they are, you know, that they are fantastic. But it's unclear that they're going to change their behavior. Was well, value affirmation techniques. Uh, if you are making them reflecting on values, they are not selfish values. And these people are likely to think that they have values there are, you know, transcendent values, values that are of cooperation and so on and so forth. If you make them reflect on these values, uh, that process of reflecting on these values makes them less defensive, or at least that's the thought.
0: Right, right. Well, that's a good um, good point to end on. Um, Alessandra, you know, thank you uh, for joining me on New Books and Philosophy. It's been a real pleasure uh, talking to you about your new book. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion of Alessandra tanasini's new book. It's called The Mismeasure of the Self, A Study in Vice Epistemology. It's newly published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.